dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Leaders know that they're talented, You know that you have gifts that you are called to share, but how do you stay humble? Is it ever okay to refuse the honor of leadership out of a sense of deference or humility? And on the other hand, is it ever okay to accept to lead because you know that you're the best one for the job? These are the questions St. Gregory the Great treats in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of his book, Regula Pastoris, that is, A Rule for Shepherds. Thank you, everyone, for your attention and for being willing to go this extra mile to become the great leader that Christ is calling for. It takes a lot of courage to step up and lead, especially in a cultural situation that we find ourselves in today where it's almost like Christians don't feel confident to lead anymore. It's like we're ready to abdicate the reins of society and put them in the hands of people who have a completely different worldview than that that which we have than that of the gospel and i want to say this is dangerous i don't think that jesus is going to be you know is going to bless or be happy with the people that refuse the service of leadership but when you think about it a lot of people don't want to exercise the service of leadership because they find that it is ostentatious It seems proud to say that you actually know something. You know what you're doing. You know what you're about. You know the truth, right? Today, that's just not in vogue to walk around saying that you know the truth. It's much more in vogue to say, I don't know anything. I probably am wrong about everything, you know, and I'm really sorry for existing, right? (laughs) If we just put our heads down and say, everything that I've done is bad. Everything that I am is bad. People will leave us alone. Yeah, they'll leave us alone but we won't be able to exert the influence that we could exert and that our forefathers sacrificed to be, allow us to be able to exert. Christianity is not a neutral proposition, my friends. It's not like we all have a life that we're able to live any way that we want and always are equal. To think that is just to completely ignore all the lessons of history all of the lessons of human rights being abdicated, the poor being trampled upon, the unborn having their lives snuffed out. We just simply, we, we ignore that. We say that, I guess, is equal to the building up of a civilization of justice and of freedom and of light and of love. How do we build a, a real civilization where everyone can flourish and especially the poor can flourish and find their home? Where can we find a place of true equality and brotherhood and sympathy and understanding and intelligence and wisdom? How can we build that cooperative endeavor together? It's funny because that type of question is almost not even being asked in today's world. I think that a lot of people have just given up on the political process itself given up on the idea that we can build a nation where true happiness can be found by all that that noble ideal seems to have been lost 
in the in the in the 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 doubt and the skepticism and the violent opposition that it can meet with today my question is for you ought it be are you ready to let it go and simply say you know what none of us actually knows what we ought to do what is right or wrong and certainly none of us ought to have the audacity to claim to be the ones that have the answer and so what happens those people who think that they have that right they give that answer and they give it on the TV shows, they give it in the movies, they give it in the radio shows, they give it in the laws that allow for an absolutely uncensored use of the media on our phones and for our children. They are giving an answer, my friends. And so whereas the Christian church backs down and says we actually don't have the right to assert anything as true, we are acknowledging the blatant contradiction that at the same time that we say that, the world that tells us that there is no truth is offering and forcing a truth down our throats that is completely contrary to the truth of Christ. And we sit back and we let them because we are terrified on our end of actually asserting that we have something to say and that the truth of the gospel of Christ is a superior option. It is a better truth and a better way of life than the, a way of life that is ignorant or void of that truth. The fact is, someone is always leading. Someone is always leading the dialogue. Someone is always teaching. Someone is always asserting truth. It's like they have funny kind of contradiction. You've got today people, you know, they'll tell your children in, in, in school that there is no truth. And it's so easy to refute that. All you have to do is ask, is it true that there is no truth? I just want to make sure. Because on the one hand, people will say there is absolutely no laws that are absolute. They say, is that an absolute law that's absolute? And of course, that shows the contradiction. We absolutely universally assert as true that there are no absolute universal truths. <laughs> that by so doing, we completely contradict ourselves. And yet under the shade of that contradiction, all kinds of weeds are growing in our country's culture and in the way that our minds think. And that's where it's so fascinating to see Pope St. Gregory the Great, all the way back in the year in the sixth century, had to confront the same essential problem. Those who have been entrusted with the light, Christian leaders, virtuous men and women, were not asserting themselves as leaders. And Gregory the Great asked the question, is that okay? And it's a question that a lot of us have inside. We say, look, because I'm good, I'm polite, I'm respectful, I'm kind, I'm considerate of others, and since most of you are actually good, you're actually humble. You say, you know, I don't know a lot of things. I look over my life story and I realize all the places I failed with my children, with my spouse, with my extended family. Who am I to assert myself as if I knew anything more than anyone else? And so good, virtuous, holy people keep silent and they let the, the microphones of our culture and they let the leadership of our groups and of our schools in the hands of people who are not virtuous and who do not have that light of Christ in their eyes, who actually are agenda-driven and, and take over precisely because there's a power void. That's why Pope Gregory the Great's question is so profound. He says, in fact, can you say that it is humility 
that keeps a good man from leading? Or on the contrary, is the good man actually seeking his own interest at the expense of those whom he could be serving? Even if he does it inadvertently. He says, how do you know that in fact, when you deny the ability to lead or your, your capacity to lead, when you hide the light, when you don't take on those roles, how do you know that in the end you're actually not just being self-serving and you hide it under the guise of humility? Who am I to do that? I don't want to be a hypocrite, etc. I think Pope Gregory the Great was to throw his hands up in the air a little bit and say, my friend, if you don't do it, who will? And what if that person is actually a lot worse than you are? Well, then we all have to suffer the consequences. But on the other hand, it's a truth that God is supreme. All of us are just his creatures. And so it also seems a fitting thing for us to refuse leadership just to say, you know, I mean, there are other people who are better than me. And so how do I know when I do that, I'm not being self-serving? And how do I know that when I do lead, I'm not proud? How do I keep to the middle ground amidst those two very dangerous extremes of false humility or an actual pride? Pope St. Gregory the Great actually goes into that. It's in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of his book on the rule of shepherds. This is Father Nathan. I know that many of you listening are looking for a better place to be. You're not happy necessarily with what's going on in the world. You're not happy with where your life is going and you wonder if there's any way to go forward. That's why we started the St. John Leadership Institute in Denver, Colorado. The idea is simple. Move to Denver, live with a community of your peers, earn a master's degree in any subject from any university and become a saint while doing it. Check us out at stjohnleadershipinstitute.org. All right, so go ahead and open up your books with me. We're at chapter five of Regula Pastoralis, right? The Rule of Shepherds, written by Pope Gregory the Great in the sixth century of Christ AD. He was the Pope at the time, and he wrote this for the bishops of the Catholic Church and men who were called to be bishops as a kind of rule to help them to discern what was going on inside. It just has so many lessons that can be applied to you and your states as leaders of businesses and leaders of your family and of culture that I wanted to bring it out to you. So I don't think many people here are called to be bishops. <laughs> all right. That's, but at the same time, all of us who are called to lead need to learn from what we can of these ancient texts because the wisdom here is just so profound. So before we go any further, let's go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we bow our head before you to ask you to bless us. Send your spirit upon us. Help us to hear your call to lead, to know where we are to lead, and to do so generously. Amen. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and begin where he himself begins here in chapter 5. And he has this great first sentence. For there are some who are eminently endowed with virtues, and for the training of others are exalted by great gifts, who are pure in zeal for chastity, strong in the might of abstinence, filled with the feasts of doctrine, humble in the long-suffering of patience, erect in the fortitude of authority, tender in the grace of loving-kindness, strict in the severity of justice. Truly such as these, if when called, they refuse to undertake offices of supreme rule, for the most part deprive themselves of the very gifts which they have received not for themselves alone, but for others also. 
And while they meditate their own and not another's gain, they forfeit the very benefits which they desire to keep to themselves. All right, that's a, I want to unpack that, right? That's the opening here of chapter five. But it's a question that a lot of us feel inside. I mean, you're here today at the St. John Institute, not because you're inept and not because you don't know what you're doing, but on the contrary, you're competent and you do know what you're doing. Not only are, do you inherit the great political situation we've inherited thanks to our veterans who have fought for us, but you've inherited a great economic situation. You've inherited an amazing education and then you've plied your talents, God given or instructed for the betterment of the world around you. You've gone through bankruptcies. You've gone through st financial stresses. You've had to lay off your friends. You've had to, to sacrifice nights of work you constantly carry the burden on your back of, of the responsibilities that you've been given. And then on top of that, you go out and you're the, you're the soccer coaches, you're the soccer referees, you're the volunteer firefighters. I mean, you guys are amazing. And, and you know that you're amazing if you ever take a step back and look at it. It's like that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where one good man has a chance to see what the world would look like if he never lived. And without his singular life, the entire world not only looked different, but it looked a lot worse. And he takes stock when he sees that of the value of every one of his choices and the value of all the little things that he does every day that he doesn't think are appreciated. I wonder what it would be like if you let yourself have that same vision. And just for a second, sat back and said, what would this place look like if I wasn't here? Would it be for the better or for the worse? You all, I can tell you right now, it would be much for the worse because you not only keep this country together, but you keep your families together and you continue to push forward to do great things. But we all know well that you can do great things. You can push forward in different ways, but that doesn't guarantee that you're actually doing it for the right reason, with the right spirit, or in a way that actually sanctifies you. How do you do that? How do you both achieve at the human, secular, worldly level the, the success that you can and that you need to achieve and at the same time please God? It's such a big question that a lot of people say there is no way and they'll actually say don't take the place of leadership. Don't take a role that's in the front because it seems to be an antimony with holiness. How can I follow a carpenter's son king if I have worldly success and worldly acclaim and worldly power. And so because of that, we kind of withdraw ourselves and we say, I guess I either will not be a good Christian or I will not be a good leader. And so a lot of people do that. And it's what they say is, well, they're going to be a good leader and they're just going to like wait and catch up on their Christianity. And they always kind of feel that guilt because they know religion is really important. But at the same time, it's like, ah, it's, I, I got to do what I got to do. And that's an unreconcilable difference in their mind that keeps them from spiritual growth because they opt for the leadership that they know that they can give. It's stronger than you. You being in charge of your company, you inventing, you being an entrepreneur, it's stronger than you. It's who you are. And so then you end up walking around this world saying that you're not comfortable being who you are because you're not supposed to be successful because Christians are always supposed to be humble. And then on the other hand, you have those who say, I'm not going to fail at the most important thing called my religion. So I'm just going to eschew all forms of leadership and all kinds of, of excellence. 
and just give myself to a spirituality of quasi-humility. In the middle stands the Christian leader, an authentic person who accepts the role of excellence and success with humility. This is where St. Gregory the Great is pointing to. He points out, first of all, that when you are gifted with talent or skill, it is so that you benefit the world thereby. Meaning that the reason why God gave you gifts is so that you could give them to his people. I mean, it's without a doubt that when you have a gift, in a way you become better than the others. It's like a mother or a father can run faster, speak better, and actually live an independent life, whereas their children can't. Well, who's going to say that that puts the children at a disadvantage? Well, in one way, you could look at that and say, sure, it does. But in the other, what a blessing, because if that's your mom and dad, and your mom and dad are excellent at living, they're going to give you everything that they have if you're their child and teach you how to be excellent like them. And so there's no reason to be jealous. And there's also no reason for them to hide everything that makes them great. All of their greatness and excellence is for the sake of their children and helping their children to become embedded thereby. Well, Gregory the Great says, that is exactly the attitude that every leader needs to take in the name of Christ. He, he quotes Matthew 5.15, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither, neither do they light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick that it may give life to all who are in the house. And he goes even further and he quotes John 15. And he says, listen, when Jesus was speaking to Simon Peter, he asked him three times, if you love me. And do you guys remember what Simon Peter said back to Jesus? Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And then what happens? Peter tells our Lord, yes, you know, I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. He actually equates loving him with feeding his sheep, loving him with taking care of the burden of leadership. If you love me, then you will lead. It's to the point where Gregory the Great actually says, you know, when you withhold your gifts and your greatness, you're actually doing an act that could be selfish. You're seeking your own interests instead of those of the people because we need these great leaders. And he even goes so far as to speak about judgment and the judgment of Christ against those who, he says, meditating his own advantage neglects that of his neighbor's those who enriched with great gifts while they are ardent for the studies of contemplation only shrink from serving to their neighbor's benefit by preaching. They love a secret place of quiet. They long for retreat of speculation with respect to which conduct they are, if strictly judged, undoubtedly guilty in proportion to the greatness of the gifts whereby they might have been publicly useful. Isn't that an amazing indictment? I don't think many of us have ever heard the gospel spoken against us for not sharing our gifts, for withholding them. We think it's more humble to stay hidden. But Gregory the Great's pointing out that true humility is co-committing with love. And love puts us at the service of those who are around us, those who have been given to us. And so all of the greatness that we have inside is thus poured out, given to those whom we serve by leading them. This is Father Nathan. I know a lot of people are formed in leadership in ways that are very practical and efficient. This is good, of course, but is there something more? Coming to the St. John Leadership Institute in Denver, Colorado, young adults are able to learn not only how to lead effectively, but how to lead in the spirit. 
anchoring a master's degree and specific business skills in prayer and spirituality. Find out more at stjohnleadershipinstitute.org. All right, so how do we overcome this opposition between what looks like showing ourselves by leading and our Lord's own example of hiding himself by humility? After all, he'd go towards the poor. He himself was from the poor. He never held a political office. He never accepted to be king. So why should we then take on the role of leadership? He gives the answer to us in chapter 7, saying really quite simply, it's because of love. The love of our neighbor leads us to serve by leadership. The love of our neighbor. So you have both the love of Christ who pushes us to leadership, and then the love of our neighbor by seeing our leadership as we really should and really ought by being as an act of service. We give to those whom we lead the ability for them to act and to act well by giving them this service of leadership. But where's the other side? Their side comes in in chapter six where he says, well, let's take a look at what it means to say no. Is it ever okay to basically say, I'm not the best at this. I shouldn't lead. He's going to answer that in chapter six, but I want to point out something that he doesn't really talk about, and that is the fatigue or burnout that can come from leadership. And I want to mention this especially because most of you who are here are here because you already are in service and you can actually suffer from having taken too much on. Now, I don't think Pope Gregory the Great would be that sympathetic towards you because he himself, you know, didn't want to be the Pope, but he accepted to be the Pope, even though he was an abbot of a monastic community. But he accepted to do it out of love and out of service and all of those things at a time when there was a lot of stress and associated with the job. He had a political situation that was very difficult, an ecclesial situation which was very difficult, and he stepped up and made it happen. So I don't know if he would be sympathetic, but today in our modern understanding of human psychology and the balance that we have of life, I think it's really important that you understand it is okay to say no. You can be too generous with your service if it comes to the point of taking away your very strength to serve. We sometimes say, it goes God, others, myself. Or you hear people say, I am third, right? But the problem is that if we do that, most of the people who say that never get to themselves. It would be fine if you actually were third, but by the time you give to God and then you give to others, it seems like there's very little time left for yourself. And so you can actually burn out by doing simply too much. I don't think that that's consonant with Christian history. God doesn't want you to burn out nor does he want you to lose your strength or your energy by the real toil and labor of leadership. That's not what St. Gregory the Great's pushing for. He's saying, so far as you can keep that balance, you need to have the fundamental optic of saying, I am here to give the best of myself to those around me. Because otherwise, if we don't, well then the great stage of leadership and the great places where culture is formed will be filled by those who have a different mind and a different attitude than that of Christ. And that means that then instead of the positive light of the gospel shining forth in our world, the negative culture of death becomes propagated as the new norm. 
And this is where the Christian leaders need to stand up because no one else can do it but us, and therefore, let us do it, right? So when can I say no, though, and do legitimacy? Chapter 6, he actually says, you know, there is a true humility that can allow you to actually say you're not able to do the job. And he says that true humility has three conditions to it. Number one, he says you have to submit yourself to God's will no matter what. There are those who out of pride will simply not do what God wants them to do because it's hard. Right? It's hard to be a mom. It's hard to say yes to another child. It's hard to, to lead a company. It's hard to go to work every day. And yet this is the will of God that you be engaged in this great theater of human action. And we have to be humble enough to say, yes, I'm willing to do what God wants me to do. The second condition is that you really do receive the refusal be out of a sense of true humility. That is, you look at other people that could do the job as authentically being better than you. And now here, of course, it requires something that's very difficult for ourselves, which is the ability to judge ourselves well. It's like that old saying that goes, he who has himself as a spiritual director has a fool as a spiritual director, right? We, we all understand our own inadequacies. But sometimes, honestly, we can exaggerate them. And here, Gregory the Great is saying, yes, there is a place to say that others around me actually are better for the job. But take care in how you evaluate that so that what you cloak with the word humility isn't, in fact, simply laziness. But there actually is obviously room to deny based upon your own inadequacy or someone else's superiority. And then thirdly, he says, the third rule is that you not be obstinate. There can be, of course, the simple call to obey that you need to be able to follow simply because it has to do. So you can really see in 5, 6, and 7 here, Gregory the Great is issuing an urgent summons. All that is necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to do nothing. Thomas Jefferson said that in the 18th century, but already here in the 6th century, the same sentiment is spoken because honestly it comes from Christ himself and from the gospel. Just as he gave St. Peter the summons to be the first pope and to lead his church in his name by deploying his gifts of leadership, so he's summoning you to be the leaders that this world needs and to not hide the light of Christ under the bushel basket of a false humility, but rather truly humble of heart, following God's will to give your greatness as an authentic gift of love. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.